Today being the Lunar Observance Day, we come together for some practice into the night. Just coming up to the New Year time in the Southeast Asian Theravada countries where the roots of our tradition lie. In Thai, the word is Songkran. That literally translates <coughs> as the moving forward of the sun, the progress of the sun, as in changing of the seasons, changing of time, measured by the sun and its um, the way the earth is orbiting around the sun and so on. It's partly it's, it was chosen as a significant time astrologically. And it's been the, uh, the time for the Buddhist countries to uh, celebrate, you might say, New Year. You have to have one time in the 12 months of the year that you call the New Year. Apparently the term Songkran refers to every month, every new month is a Songkran. And the one in April is Maha Songkran, because it's the one that's been designated as New Year. It's convenient for humans to have these kind of designations, to have calendars, measure time in terms of days and nights. And traditionally in the, the Buddhist countries, they have people come together. And although there's a lot of entertainments as in any other New Year tradition, it's also a time where people visit family, pay respects to elders, show their gratitude, particularly to parents, grandparents and elders in the community, as well as coming into monasteries to pay respects to monks and teachers. Which is something that has been inspired by the recollection that time is moving on, moving forward, always. It's one of those things you can't reclaim. You can't turn the clock back. You can't reclaim your youth. You can't reclaim yesterday. Although we come together to remember the new year, meet with family and friends and so on, as bhikkhus we really recollect the passing of time every day. As Lumpur Cha used to say, the days and all we now have translated it as the days and nights are endlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Lumpur Cha used to say something like, the days and nights are passing. What am I doing right now? How well am I spending my time? For somebody interested to train themselves, to free themselves from the causes of suffering, we have to be willing to do this, to keep coming back to the present moment, bringing up mindfulness 
even though it's tempting often to just let time slip by, to be complacent. And a lot of the Buddha's teachings are pointing to this, to reflect on the impermanence of our life. We're not getting younger, we're getting older. We tend towards sickness and things get more difficult the older we get. As we get older, our faculties start to slip, weaken the strength of the body, strength of our eyesight, ear, hearing, memory and so on. So the wise reflection is as time is passing, we really should use it well. Whatever the obstacles we face, whatever the difficulties, every day uh, is an opportunity to practice. And we should bring that up, learn, learn to the skill of bringing up energy in the practice by reflecting on the passing of time. As Buddhist monks, we don't need much in terms of equipment or requisites. You know, we have our robes and our bowl. Lumpocha used to say this is our, the word they use in Thai is muniti, trust fund. There was once a time when the Sangha in Wat Bapong put it to Lumpur that maybe like other monasteries that had been established for a long time with a lot of lay support and a large Sangha, they should establish a trust fund to be a place where money can be deposited for all kinds of uses in the Sangha for funding food, funding travel, different projects, spreading the Dhamma and so on. And other Sanghas and monasteries do that quite often in Thailand. But for various reasons, Lumpur Cha didn't go with that suggestion. And he said, our bowl and our robes is our trust fund. As long as we have a bowl and robes, that's all we need to survive as monks. You wear your robes, you go out on Bindabhata, and those with faith will come forward to support you. Perhaps he was concerned about the danger of accumulating funds in a bank account and the greed that that might bring up and the disharmony over how the funds were spent and so on. So it's a reflection for us as we practice that we're living as salmoners. We have our bowl, our robes, that's all we need. And then we should devote our time to studying and then practicing the Buddhist teachings. And we have many hours in the day. We have some group activities and a lot of individual time. And it's really up to us to make use of our time well with meditation, learning the Dhamma, learning the chanting, learning the skills of a bhikkhu, learning the Vinaya. We can't just expect the Dhamma to fall into our laps. We have to make the effort, we have to <clears throat> do the practice and trust that over time the results will come back to us. I remember when I was a novice staying at Wat Kuan, which was uh, the island monastery in the reservoir near the Laotian border. And it was a place that was very remote and the, there was very little support, so there was very little food there. And the condition, living conditions were quite tough. And it was a place that Lumpur Chan and Lumpur Liam would send new monks who were considered akanduka. Sometimes they hadn't been formally accepted into the Sangha yet, they were on a period of probation. 
and sometimes they'd be sent to Watkun, <coughs> you might say, as a test of their faith and whether they could uh, keep up the training rules and observances of Wapapong in that situation. Where they go on Bindabata, but there's very little support. And being such a small Sangha, there's usually just a couple of monks, a novice, a teacher, and very few lay people visited in those days. One had a lot of time to practice, um, but one had to be inventive and put forth effort because there was so little support from the surrounding people. There weren't any people, basically. <laughs> Perhaps that's why those monks were sent there. And I remember one monk came and he decided to learn the Patimoka. He was obviously determined to join the Sangha of Wapapong. And he wanted to learn the Patimoka so he would chant it all night. And even though I was camping in the forest a long way from where he was staying, many hundreds of meters away, I could just hear his voice. And he'd go right through the night, 1am, 2am, I could hear him chanting. He'd be walking up and down on his jonkum path with a candle. So I asked him one day, I said, oh, you're very diligent learning the Patimoka. He said, yeah, I probably would be just sleeping if I didn't do this. I want to bring up energy and this is the best way I could think about how to bring up energy. I always remember that because he's very diligent over a period of several months going without sleep, learning the Patimoka and he learned it very well, chanted it very beautifully. And we have to be the ones who learn to put effort into our practice in this way. We can't always wait for someone else to tell us what to do. We have to look at what we, our character, who we are, what our skills are, what our strengths are, what our weaknesses are, and see where we may improve things and what particular practices will help us improve, where we can learn something new, where we can bring up more effort in our meditation. And not all of the answer to that will be found in the books. Sometimes we get ideas from others. Sometimes we have to be creative ourselves and think what can we do, what will help our practice. Sometimes it's about giving things up, giving up certain habits, giving away certain possessions. Sometimes it's about taking on new habits new practices that may at first seem like an extra burden or some kind of extra responsibility but then over time we might realize that these new practices we take on can be quite skillful and we can learn from them say for instance learning a chant or we can make resolutions about how much we eat, how much we sleep, how much we talk, and so on, and how we spend our time. This is part of our training, using our time well and seeing and finding ways to use our time well. As we put effort into our practice, 
then gradually you get used to the monastic environment, get used to the Vinaya. So most people settle down. They learn the basic rules of training, follow the routine. And this brings a certain peace of mind because you understand what you have to do and how to live, even though internally we may have different moods and uh, periods where we have you know, more negative moods come up. If you, once you understand the basic rules of training, the ways of practice, it gives us a certain confidence. If you invest time and effort in learning what are the basic practices of a monk, how to look after your requisites, how to get up early to meditate, how to be restrained, restrained in our speech, our actions, and so on. If you invest time in that, then it gives you a certain self-confidence and a feeling of being at ease in the robes, in the practice, which is a very good platform for developing more refined mindful awareness. When you have that sense of ease, when you come to sit meditation or walk meditation, you don't have a lot bothering you. You still have your mind and the different distractions that come up. But the aim is that you can sit meditation or walk meditation without a lot of um, issues you know, with other people, dissatisfaction and so on. It may come up from time to time. But you want to, you need to see the relationship between your external behavior and then internally what's happening in your mind. If you can put effort into training yourself to be at ease, to follow the routines, keep the Vinaya, then meditation becomes a lot easier very quickly. As we put effort into our meditation practice, then obviously we're aiming to bring up mindfulness using the meditation techniques, using the breath meditation, contemplation of the body, recollection of the Buddha, and so on. We have to keep using a meditation technique, get, become skilled with it, become familiar with it, as a way to bring up mindfulness, to cut through the hindrances and the habitual distractions that we're used to. And we all have the same problem. You sit down to meditate and the mind often doesn't settle down very quickly. We have different moods bothering us. Partly it's, in the beginning, tends to be doubt, sleepiness. As we practice more, maybe get more used to the practice, there may be more subtle moods, disappointments, dissatisfactions with things or just cravings for different sensual objects. As monks we get to understand the point how a lot of sense desire is based just around the feeling of pleasure that you get when you fantasize or think about things that you want that you haven't got. As people often say, when you get the thing it's fairly ordinary and your mind immediately wants something else. But it's the leading up to the getting of it is the enticing part. So 
So many meditators spend a lot of time just fantasizing about places they want to go or what they want to do. Things they want to get. Objects of the senses. Because it fills the mind, takes one away from perhaps some feeling of boredom or some pain or some restlessness of mind. So we have to battle with a lot of sense desire in our meditation. And you notice how when your effort is weak, it's very easy for sense desire to take over. We love to fantasize, to imagine. The most powerful one is sexual attraction, but it can be much more subtle than that, or more ordinary than that. Thinking about food, thinking about medicines, thinking about different items, requisites that we want, making plans, how to improve our kuti, how to improve our space and so on. How much of our meditation time is spent thinking about these things. And it can be quite enjoyable if you're not particularly peaceful. That's where you have to be quite strong. Be willing to go against that habit and bring the mind back to the breath, back to Buddha. The only way we can really let go of sensual desire is developing some higher, more satisfying happiness, the kind of happiness that comes from the peaceful mind. As we develop uh, mindfulness on the breath, you're putting your attention on the breath and then learning to sustain that attention, actually keep it there. And that's a skill where we're neither pushing too hard nor we're too lazy or too loose, but just learning to keep the attention with the breath. If we can do that, then we will start to experience some pity, some rapture. Often the books translate pity as joy, rapture. And used to call it interest. Because it's when your meditation object becomes interesting enough for the mind that it sticks with it and starts to absorb into it a little bit. So then it's less restless. So they say when pity arises, even if only briefly, anger and boredom, frustration fades at that moment. It's like when your mind brightens a little bit. You become interested in your object, you're willing to stick with it, and you can learn from the breath. And as we know from the texts, there's different kinds of pity that arise, the rapture that can pervade the body. In particular, the body and mind feel very light. So it helps us to deal with pain, deal with restlessness. And the mind feels at ease for the first time. So putting attention on the breath, vitaka, or literally lifting attention up to the breath, sustaining that attention, which are and pity, the interest arising. We're not bored with the meditation anymore. That has to come through effort, being willing to set aside our sense desires, our other moods, 
and keep doing it. Even more satisfying than that is sukha, the real sense of contentment that really stills the mind as sort of the worrying and the restless jumping around of the mind really settles down. Pity can still be a little bit disturbing to the mind. Sukha is where the mind really becomes still, but as we all know, a strong sensual desire, an object of sense desire coming up can break through all that. Some people even have the problem, they, they've experienced some pity and sukha and then they start fantasizing about more sensual things that bring up a certain similar, vaguely similar kind of joy. So some people they start becoming content, calm in their meditation and then they have sexual fantasies or fantasize about something or other that brings them a lot of joy. Like triggers that off. They have to be very clear and very sharp at that point where sukha arises, not to let the mind go into fantasizing about sensuality, sense objects, and keep it on track with determination, patience, and putting effort still into your object of meditation, even if it's becoming more refined, so that you can experience the last factor of samadhi, eka, kata, one-pointedness. In every stage there has to be a certain wisdom functioning as well, telling yourself to discard, abandon the hindrances that may be coming up. Maybe simply a voice telling you to give it up is enough. Other times you have to work hard to replace the hindrance with something better. Ideally, you just replace it with attention on your meditation object, but sometimes you have to use other techniques to replace, temporarily replace the hindrance with a more wholesome object. You know, if you're falling asleep, then find a skillful way to wake yourself up, arouse enough energy so that you don't give in to your drowsiness, your sleepiness. Ideally, you just turn to the breath, but if that's not working, then you know, say on a night like tonight, you might go and sit outdoors. The cold air of the night might awake you, wake you up. The movement of animals or things moving around might help keep you awake. Some monks even go and sit on a high spot where if they fall, then they could hurt themselves as a way to keep them awake. You have to sometimes use a, a skillful means to drop a hindrance in the course of developing samadhi. Turn to metta when you've got anger. Put effort into arousing wakefulness. The Lumpur Cha said he'd even walk backwards when he was walking Jongram if he was so tired or distracted that he couldn't keep his mind focused on the walking and he'd walk backwards. If you walk backwards, then you become very careful because you don't want to trip over. Often in the short term, we have to have enough sharpness to see where we, we can introduce a, another way of, another object, more wholesome object for the mind to replace the hindrance that, that's dominating the mind at that, that time. Pull it away and you might find some temporary relief from that hindrance you get a little bit of 
pity and sukha arising from dropping the hindrance. Your samadhi becomes firmer when you drop a hindrance. When you contemplate the repulsiveness of the body to counteract lust, often you get some real joy when you finally drop the lustful intention, the fantasy. Perhaps the biggest joy is when you have fear and you overcome fear by focusing your mind on your meditation object and the fear drops away then the mind becomes very bold, very firm and one-pointed. Whatever the hindrance is, your aim is to bring up this firmness where the mind can't be swayed by the hindrances. And it's not just through willpower or just trying to forbid your mind to think these other thoughts. It has to come through skillful means, both attention and energy put towards the meditation object and then some wise reflection to help cut away hindrances. If you try and do it just through willpower, you generally become disappointed, frustrated, tired. When you're using skillful means, you can actually push through even feelings of tiredness. You can push through them. And you'll find when the hindrances drop away, then you get an extra burst of joy and happiness. And this kind of happiness is not based on a sense object. It's a different kind of happiness, and obviously a better kind of happiness. Niramisa Sukha. It's not dependent on a pleasant sight, sound, taste, touch, or fantasy, or an imagination. It's the happiness of dropping the hindrances in the mind, experiencing some real peace, emptiness, freedom. And we can build on this. If you practice regularly, then you can remember how you've let go of hindrances before by putting effort in certain ways of meditating that were successful. You have to review what you've done and see what worked. Then you can build on that so that you can experience more of this kind of inner happiness of the peaceful mind. Even though it may be just temporary liberation of the mind, it's invaluable in the course of our practice, because it gives us a taste of the freedom that we want. One of the ten Anusati recollections is the Upasamanusati recollection of Nibbana. We can actually bring that up as a recollection if if it helps, what does Nibbāna mean to you as a concept first, just as an idea, non-attachment, non-clinging, <clears throat> the unborn, the uncreated, the pure, the unborn, the undying. You actually bring up as a meditation object the recollection of Nibbāna, and drop everything else. Everything else is obviously not Nibbāna. Wanting things, pushing things away, desiring things, aversion for other things. And none of that is Nibbāna, so it gives you a very clear direction to take in your meditation. Everything else is not Nibbāna, so it can be abandoned. Sometimes one can get a similar result recollecting Sangha, if one has faith, strong faith in a particular uh, living Sangha member, teacher, or sometimes Sangha that we've read about, 
one recollects what qualities we uh, that sangha person member symbolizes to us it drops the the hindrances drop away we the mind becomes brighter energized so especially when we're practicing for long periods if we put effort into our meditation experience some of this one pointedness the liberation of mind even for short periods gives you a kind of relief from the normal discursive thinking and moods that bother us and this is um, part of the the motivation the incentive to keep practicing you know, a little taste of nibbana temporary nibbana they call it so tonight we have a um, chance to practice together I'll say just these few words for now and we can carry on sitting until it's the time for the chanting mm-hmm.